0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthew.3cr.org.au.
1: CR community radio you're listening now to iris i'm your host for this episode of queering the air this afternoon in melbourne kulin nations lands yeah and firstly i'd like to give an acknowledgement of country that i'm broadcasting over the lands that are stolen they're the lands of the kulin nation the wurundjeri and bunurong people's lands and i'd like to acknowledge first nations resistance which is ongoing in this country too um I'd like to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Um, on, on that point as well, um, I'd like to shout out to First Nations Mutual Aid, who are doing end of year Xmas vouchers, I mean, Xmas hampers, and doing all sorts of amazing stuff. Definitely get behind them. Um, and they have a Chuff campaign, which I'll provide the links in the show notes. So, in terms of this episode of Queering the Air, um, this afternoon we're going to hear from two special guests, Paz Foyoni, who's been active in welfare rights for many years, and later Alex Boucher, who's the lead candidate for Pride in protests, pushed to get to the Marty, get on the board of the Mardi Gras on the platform of being anti coop and against the corporate shenanigans of queer politics. So that's the show today. Um... But first, I'd like to just shout out to an incredible last Thursday, Disability Day 2020, Imagining Disability Justice, which was a 12-hour radio broadcast event on International Day of People with a Disability, coordinated by Pauline Vishuna. And yeah, it was inspired by the book Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice, and featured some incredible content. Definitely check it out. Um, yeah. Water, and it's available to listen to or read the transcript at 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2020. Um, yeah, definitely check that out, listeners. Um, and some other shout-outs to the things that are going on. Uh, I attended a few things this week. There was the GAML means no solidarity action on the steps of Parliament House, and that's a struggle for being waged by Gamilaroi people and those coordination, that that National Day of Action was in solidarity and organised by Gamilaroi Next Generation and other groups. Um, And quoting from them, it is to get Santos to frack off our country for the federal and state governments to abolish their cultural heritage laws that allowed this to happen and demand for them to meet with Gumarai and undergo proper consultation. So yeah, so more context is there's these massive gas fields in northern New South Wales, Narrabri and Pilaga regions being approved recently by the federal government and yeah, there's grassroots movements popping up to stop it. It's really terrible what's going on. It's going to contribute to more dangerous capitalist colonial climate change. Yeah, it's pretty messed up and amazing movements popping up, solidarity with the gamble means no movement. Also solidarity um, with organising for people experiencing homelessness, um, the renters and houses renters and housing union uni Victoria had an action on Monday and I'm also um, going to be covering those two things, the Women line which comes out on Monday at 8.30am. Um, some more news and shout outs. Here, Um, Australian military war crimes in Afghanistan have been exposed and have been on a topic of been on the front page of the news. And yeah, I'm reflecting on how campaigns for for inclusion for tr- for trans and queer people in the military don't change the oppressive nature of the military. And I also want to express solidarity with Bobak Sayed who. Wrote a piece that talked about how the violence in Afghanistan, um, and I quote from Babak These war crimes in Afghanistan are not an exceptional lapse in judgment, but the very character of Australia on display in full focus. And that, yeah, quote from Babak's article because solidarity with Babak because the mainstream media has really got into them. And yeah, they're amazing non binary Afghan. Writer, look forward to seeing more writing that they put out. They, I think they're writing a book. So, yeah, look up a Buck's work and read their stuff for sure. So, next we're going to go for a, go to a track. Um, and if you just joined, you are tune to Queering the Air on 3CL Community Radio. And I'm going to play Better Things Keon. <laughs> Thank you. there, and you're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio. I'm now joined on 3CR Queering the Air with Paz Forgioni.
2: Good afternoon, Iris.
1: Cool, you can hear me. Um, So Paz Forgioni is a prominent campaigner in welfare rights over the years, been involved in Anti-Poverty Network SA, and used to also work for ACOS. Would you also like to talk a bit more about yourself?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I've I've been uh I I guess working as an activist on and off on um, you know, what you might call um link issues um and for the past um nine years. Uh mostly in Adelaide but had a brief brief stint in in Sydney. Um I started off as a campaigner um, against the uh, you know, punitive basics card which you know, you might recall, started off in the uh, Northern Territory, but then was, unlike um, extended um, to the northern um, suburbs of Adelaide and, like, the whole host of other um, sites. And, of course, now we have an even worse version of the Basics card called called the Cash or Steba card. But um, I've also done, like, a lot of work around um, job active. So, uh, unlike anyone, unlike who's ever been unemployed, you know, would likely go through the experience of having to deal with job agencies and the... And the harassment and the stress and all the hoops you have to jump through to keep um receiving um your payment, but uh, probably my main focus for the last few years has been working on different campaigns to um to increase the level of uh, job seeker um, uh, what used to be called new start and and a youth allowance these are the payments for um for unemployed people and students, and they've been uh, very, very low for a a very very mm. long time, so that's probably been my main. My main focus, but basically, uh, you know, I've spent most of my time over the last uh, decade, like thinking about all the ways that, that um, you know, life is hard for people accessing um, government payments, and how people on government payments can be organised to um, to push back um, um, against the, you know, often quite quite cruel um, treatment that they receive um, while they're on um, uh, benefits.
1: Yeah, for sure. And also thinking back to five years ago, because I think I met you around five years ago at the anti-poverty network um, little conference thing in in, in so called Adelaide on Kona Country. Um and thinking around then I was involved in the Doll Action Group, which and we put out a thing like a demand to double the doll, which no one really saw as like achievable then. Um, what are your reflections on welfare rights campaigns in the twenty twenty in the pandemic? And we've seen like the doll temporarily now like tapered off and being um tapered down to the same poverty rate. But what are your reflections on campaigns and this year?
2: Yeah, well I, well it's incredible looking back, isn't it, that um and none of us quite saw this um, coming. I remember back in March, i um, like thinking about uh, what the government was going to do um, for unemployed people during COVID, whether there would only be support for people who had um, lost their jobs because of COVID or whether everyone who was unemployed um, would get some extra money. And none of us, none of us would have predicted that, that the um, government would in fact um, temporarily double uh, the rate of of um job seeker that's exactly what happened um and we went from job seeker being um, um about 40 bucks a day or 280 bucks a week to uh 550 bucks a week or like 1100 dollars a fortnight it was you know certainly, certainly the first time in our lifetimes Iris that we've had an unemployment payment that was above on um, the poverty line uh and and over the several months that we had that um, that extra money, that full five hundred and fifty dollars a fortnight COVID supplement on top of you know, uh and the stories that we were hearing, which I'm sure all your listeners have heard, you know, people mm-hmm. saying, you know, they weren't skipping meals anymore, you know, they weren't they weren't skipping medicines. They can actually like afford to buy fresh fruit and vegetables. They can they can get um, medical work done. I mean, they can afford to see a dentist or. a or a physiotherapist, or a a psychologist if they've run out of their free mental health sessions. I mean, you know, tremendous life-changing impact, you know, over that period, you know, on people's health and well-being. And, of course, like all of us as as a campaign, whether we were working for, you know, grassroots groups, like the Anti-Provy Network, or the Unemployed Workers Union, or in my case, I'm, you know, working for a or a not-for-profit um, like ACOS, uh, the Australian Council of Social Service, on the Raise the Rate campaign, we all had to, you know, very quickly readjust our demands because, you know, we had uh, we'd been massively outflanked. Um, I mean, of course, the um, the sting in the tail, the the um, the sad news is, you know, what's happened over the last few months, which is that we've seen mm. we've seen um, job seeker um, be cut. Uh, We saw the supplement lowered by $300 a fortnight at the end of September. So after after four after five months of jobseeker being livable, jobseeker is now back and below the poverty line. And we're hearing all those stories again of you know after people pay their rent, uh, there's very very little left for the other expenses, and certainly very very little left if you have if you have an emergency. Um, um come up, you know, your car breaks down or you've got a big medical expense or something happens at a very short notice and 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 you need a fair bit of money uh really, really quickly. So we've had a three hundred dollar a fortnight cut. Jobseeker's gone from um five fifty a week down to down to four ten a week. And we know on January first, um, just a week after Christmas, JobSeeker um, Job Seeker um, will be cut again. The covid supplement um will be lowered once more um by $100 on um, the fortnight which will take it down to um, um up to 350 a mm. a week so it's gone from um from 550 a week um, to 410 uh, um to 420 a week and now it's going down to um um to 370 a week so now well I'm below the poverty line, you know, like well over, I'm like $100 a week below the poverty line. It'll be from January 1st. And none of us know for sure what's going to happen after that. Will JobSeeker go back to the pre-COVID rate of, of them 40 bucks a day? Uh, we know that it's up in the air uh, and, we, and we have a tremendous um, fight on our hands um, um, to stop that from happening. And of course, mm-hmm. JobSeeker never should have been cut mean, my my view and the view of you know most of the grassroots most people on job seeker who i talk to is you know that 550 a week that should have been made permanent. that was that was a livable mm. um, rate you know like it wasn't like it wasn't like a huge amount even on even with job seeker being doubled you know only one and a half percent of rentals were affordable for someone on job seeker i'm um, just so not pretend and um, that it's a huge amount of money and uh, we did a survey of people on job seeker after they doubled the draw and you know we still had um um 3 in 10 people telling us that even at the doubled rate you know they would still skip you know at least one meal a week and 4 in 10 people saying that you know they still sometimes struggled with medical expenses so it never should have been cut in the first place and now you know what we've seen is a 300 a fortnight cut um followed by a $100 a fortnight cut um like in a few weeks and and, and it's and it's outrageous and it's devastating, and we should all be really, really serious.
1: Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I suppose the other big thing is how the cuts also justified insofar as there are payments that weren't increase. The disability support pension wasn't re- wasn't increased um, during the pandemic, and that was really messed up, like discrimination and ableism. There not, and also heaps of disabled people on. Job seeker as well, and who cut off from the DSP because of the eligibility requirements that are really messed up. Um, but yeah, thinking about who's excluded from safety nets as well, could you speak a bit about that? And also, yeah, this is yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, this is a huge part of the story. You're right. So um, um, we had 1.6 million people on job seeker, and also, like I should say, student payments as well. Let's not forget about. Um, youth allowance in our study, you receive this extra support, but uh, we had millions of people on the disability pension, uh, the age pension, uh, and the carers pension, who, um, apart from getting, you know, two, seven hundred and fifty dollar payments, received no extra support. Now, these are groups that I would be particularly vulnerable to COVID, of course, like. I'm like older people, you know people with um significant uh, I'm like health issues, and of course, as you said, like nowadays I'm to get on the disability pension um um you know the the criteria are so strict um I mean you to have a major you know severe um permanent health condition um, to be granted the payment carers of course i'm you know looking after people with with health issues, all these groups completely missed out on the extra money. And on top of that, uh, the biggest injustice of all: the millions of uh, migrant workers and international students who receive no income support at all. Um, so they don't have valid, uh, they don't have access um, to unemployment payments or or student payments, and they got nothing um, like additional. They didn't get the COVID supplement. Um, these are people who would have been, um, like in some cases, like in the case of many students, they were. They were stranded. Um, they weren't. They weren't able to to go home. Their courses, which which of course they would have spent, you know, massive sums of money, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on. You know, their courses would have been massively disrupted. Uh, um, um, I mean, the topics cancelled. You know, changes them to online learning, which obviously would have like like impacted the the, um, uh, the quality of the content. And of course, like uh, uh, migrant workers, you know, often working in those jobs that are most uh well i've like in areas that are where shutdowns, like have often happened like like hospitality for example or tourism or or in jobs where they're very um they're very vulnerable to um to um, um to catching the virus because you know they have to they have to like interact with uh, with large numbers of people so you think about um Unlike again, unlike hospitality, um, uh, delivery drivers, food drivers, all those mm. all those quite um, precarious, unsafe jobs that are very hard at the best of times, but under under COVID they're uh, they're particularly hazardous and, and risky, and no extra support as well. So I, I mean, while we had about two million unemployed people and students who were temporarily lifted some above the poverty line. You know, we had millions of carers and pensioners who got hardly any support, and millions of migrant workers and students who got absolutely no financial help from the federal government, and uh, like had to rely on um, food banks and uh, and other forms of charity where they where they were available.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so much inequality that like um, amplifies existing like oppressive hierarchies in so-called Australia, really, and. Yeah, thinking more to the systems of Centrelink and stuff um, and the return of mutual obligations in, I guess, most places in Australia, maybe apart from South Australia, temporarily. um, How and why is is Centrelink made to be punitive? Why do you think it is designed to punish people?
2: Yeah, well, this is um, really important, and I'm glad you used the word design. I mean, robo-debt's been in the news recently and we um, we've all like been following the, the um, lawsuit, which uh, which unfortunately led to you know only very very tiny payments um, for people who've been um, pursued for debts that most of the time they didn't have um, like huge debts in many cases. Um, it's, it's not it's not a mistake, it's not accidental, it's not a bungle. The system is meant to be stressful it's not meant to be unlike a pleasant, unlike experience, like relying on income support. The payments are meant to be low, uh, like applying for the payments is, you know, meant to take a lot of time and like a lot of, uh, unlike hassle and keeping the payments, like, you know, jumping through hoops um, to prove that, that you're worthy for support by, you know, searching for X number of jobs, even though we know we're... In the midst of a jobs um, crisis, and it's never been harder um to look for work and 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 the activities um um you know the um you know the often useless time wasting activities that you were forced as in if you don't say yes, you know your sole source of income um will be cut, so I uh, mean your listeners who you know might have had experience you know being required um to do work for the doll for you know twenty or twenty five hours a week, which does absolutely nothing to To improve your job prospects, but it's it's designed um, to make it you know unpleasant and and um, and undesirable. Receiving this payment, it's meant to you know suck up your time and energy, and all that is designed to to push people off Centrelink as quickly as possible um, to make sure that they that they're so desperate um, to get away from this you know very like inadequate. Safety net and this very stressful system that they'll take any job that that comes along, regardless of like how low paid it might be, or or like insecure, or or in some cases even like like how unsafe this job um, might be. And, and then of course the message to um, to people who are not on Centrelink but are like you might need to apply, uh, which is um, you know if you can find some way of surviving um, without Centrelink, then you um, should because, you know, you won't um, you won't have an easy time dealing with us. So we can even, like, think about, like, you know, what's happened in terms of, you know, the thousands of staff who've um, lost their jobs at Centrelink. Anyone who's had to call Centrelink ever um, will know that, you know, you spend hours on the phone, you know, if you need to talk to, um, to a human, you know, it gets pretty damn difficult. I um, mean, you know, either you wait on the phone or you go into the office mm. and, spend, and spend hours and hours waiting in a queue. You know, if you, if you don't have a good digital access, I'm like, heaven forbid, like you don't have a good internet connection at home or any kind of internet connection or, or you're not on a good mobile phone plan but you can't afford to um, get onto a good plan and you use up all your credits and you have to go into the office. Yeah. So yeah, it's, uh, the system's been starved of, uh, of, um, of staff. Like you know, they've made massive um, cuts, um, something in the order of of um, of, um several thousand uh, since the election of of Tony Abbott seven years ago, and you know those cuts have continued under under Turnbull and Morrison. And as you said, um, you know after a break under COVID mutual obligation, which isn't really very mutual. Like it basically means uh, I, I, you know jump um, through all these hoops, which will do very very little. Um, to, you know, improve your job prospects, which won't match up um, with your skills and interests, but just jump uh, um, through these hoops because uh, we want you to have a tough time on Centrelink. But, of course, it's not mutual because, you know, um, like in return for doing that, um, the government, you know, won't, won't give you, like, a livable income, as we've seen, and it, and it uh, certainly won't um, provide people with enough jobs um, to go around. Those who are, like, able to work, of course, and we know there's a huge number of people on JobSeeker who, you know, should be on the disability pension. They got made to health issues. Um, before no. COVID, it was 40% who had a diagnosis and disability. So it's it's mm. it's deliberate, and very soon, you know, we'll have a huge number of people who are still pretty new to being on JobSeeker who probably haven't had the experience of, you know, going to their job agency appointments and like having to sign a strict job plan and, uh, mm-hmm. like doing all those all, all those activities, they will have to like experience that um and uh, um, for the very very first time and um you, you know I um, yeah. find it um uh, uh, no quite a hassle I think
1: yeah for sure and picking up some of those issues and thinking about something I sometimes think about like because there's sometimes these quite flashy. LGBTIQ confer- conferences, and there's nothing about, like, welfare, poverty, or class. So is that something you think about much or have many reflections on in terms of queers, class, welfare, and poverty?
2: Yeah, yeah, this is uh, this has been on my mind lately. Just to give you, like, a bit of background, like, to go back a few years, um, uh, uh, many years ago, I was doing a lot of work in in the northern suburbs of Adelaide, which is a which is a very high unemployment area, one of the highest unemployment areas in the country, actually, and, and it was a cryo of the, of the Punitive Basics Card, where you, um, your listeners would definitely be familiar with the cashless debit card. The Basics Card is what came first. It's been in the Northern Territory for um, 13 years now, if you can believe it. Um, and we were meeting lots of um, young people who were being forced onto the Basics Card if they lived in a certain postcode in the northern suburbs, and and if they were on the unreasonable to live at home rate of youth allowance. Now, now who are these kinds of people who, you know, they were they were on the unreasonable to live at home rate of youth allowance. You know, um, for all sorts of reasons, but in many many cases, they were on this 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 version of youth allowance because they had to leave home because uh, it was a hostile environment, and it was like a hostile like environment because. Uh, uh, because of their um, gender or their sexuality, it, it was not safe or healthy for them to be in in the family home, and so these people were able to apply for a version of youth allowance that was slightly higher, still nowhere near enough. And what happened um, to them? They get s- slapped onto the basics cards. Like imagine being in a situation where you've had to like leave the family home because of mm. because of. Uh, um, like intolerant and um uh, uh, like unaccepting parents i um, mean you go into Centrelink to get some support so you, so you can try to like build on your own life and you get control um um taken off you like um, your ability like to manage um your money you know just like everyone else taken off you and part of your payment um, um fifty percent sometimes more gets get um um gets locked up you know. Into a card that is uh, that is um, card only that robs you of the ability uh, um, to access um, um, cash. and cash. Of course, we know there are, there are there are huge numbers of young people you know from a from a queer background who uh, you, you know are extremely at at that risk of homelessness. Um, they're living on payments um, below the poverty line, um, like often as young people they. Um, they do insecure work. Uh, they might be working in, in retail or like hospitality, um, and, and so because of those areas, they have you know very little um, stability, like in terms of their hours. And because of their uh, gender or sexuality, uh, you know they often face you know major um, discrimination uh, when it comes into the housing market. i you know, trying to find uh, mm-hmm. trying to find a rental. Uh, there's no doubt that, and of course, I can just Country in particular, uh, we we have a, uh, we have a housing market that's very much dominated by by landlords. Like in terms of um, the balance of power, you know, like our leases tend to be um, very short, much much, shorter than say European countries. So you know, you often have to move over and over again. Uh, the ability of of um, landlords to uh, uh, um, to evict you um, for no cause, um, like evictions where they don't, um, like have to give a, like a stated reason. For example, like at the end of your mm-hmm. lease, they can simply turf you out, and they aren't required to give you like a reason. Um, uh, um, certainly where I am in, um, like in South Australia, like, um, this is a huge issue,
1: yeah, And it means for sure.
2: that, um, you, you know, if you're from one of these groups, um, you're particularly vulnerable to, um, to ending up in a situation where you have to. Couch surf, or or uh, or um, live in some
1: other,
2: uh, yeah. other way that's
1: if not Yeah, If it just interrupts there, because we're sort of running towards end of time, so I might go to the next few questions. And if anyone's just tuned in, you're tuned into 3CR Community Radio, queering the air and queering the air. And I'm here with Paz talking about welfare rights. Um, so could you briefly talk a bit about? We won't be able to go into much detail about it, but about partner rules and assumptions and a bit about um how singles are policed by centrelink
2: yeah yeah this is uh, i mean uh, i mean maybe not as well known an issue like as like as some of the others but um, we know that uh, when you um when you enter like into like a relationship and you tell centrelink your your payment is is cut I mean, get shifted from the single rate of payment um the partner rate of payment now that um that might not seem like a big deal, but i actually think it is uh, um for a couple of reasons like like i'm um, like first it assumes that that, that uh, partnerships are of a certain uh, uh, um, kind that that people that people pull their um that people pull their resources and together and they don't need um their own um, like independent funds um and so, like, it creates a situation where um, you might be like in a partnership. You don't necessarily um, be, um, pull together your money, and so you're like, you're like experiencing a cut to your income, which actually um, makes you more dependent on your partners, on your partners and finances. And I'm not sure that I- I'm not sure that's a good thing. I think, like, in any partnership, like um and people need economic independence and that means that you know they should stay on the higher rate of a payment um, like even when they are a couple or like in any kind of relationship and mm-hmm. um and the other thing is that um when we um it creates um, like a climate where where people um people feel like they're being monitored where uh, our people feel like uh you know they have to be secretive about their relationship um so that they don't get uh, um financially penalized and i don't think i don't think that's that's fair i don't think it's i'm like healthy for people having to constantly stress about like whether the government works out if, if they're in a relationship or not um but the government obviously does it to um save as much money as possible uh because they're other mm. uh, than penny pinches and i'd rather spend money on corporate tax cuts than giving people like a livable income um and like finally the last thing like to think about and it's been on my mind during covid um people people on job seeker or like any unlike income support payment they're all uh, and they're all too low i'm um, like how much harder it is to leave uh an abusive or or violent in relationship when you don't um have like an adequate income So in the story that I was getting um after they temporarily doubled gobseeker um back at the end of April to the end of September is um people who because of that extra money left debt left relationships they had and uh, um, they had that extra um cash they could flee they could travel um quickly they could get accommodation they could set up in other parts of the country. I think when we when we think about Centrelink and relationships, we got to we got to think about you know are we are we providing people with enough like income support where they can you know not only um live with dignity and cover all their essential costs um but where um they're in a position where if they're in danger you know like if they're in an unsafe space uh, they can very quickly you know pack up and and get away from um, from someone who's, uh, um, like, who's dangerous. And mm-hmm. and the fact is, in single mother groups and domestic violence groups, have, um, like, have been saying this stuff for years and years. Of course, you know, if we don't, you know, if we don't have adequate payments, you know, we've got to have many, many people stuck in abusive um, relationships who can't leave because of uh, um, because of the poverty that they that they like experience. Of course, like, even when you do get away. Um, like how hard it is then to access extra support at at Centrelink, like like crisis payments, all the challenges are, are like around you, you know just all the time it it takes um to be able to you know like engage Centrelink and update your details and and um get any extra yeah. money that's available and yeah. get access to a social work. Yeah,
1: know, if really I just interrupt to... again. Um... It's, yeah, it's so exhausting there. We'll have to go on to the last point. But yeah, picking up just a few things you said, it's like the state itself, by controlling people on welfare is itself abusive. Um, and, a, and then that's another layer for people in abusive relationships to have to navigate. And I think it's telling that Centrelink was the first government inf- institution to recognize same-gender relationships. And now to some extent polyamorous relationships because it saves themselves, saves the money in terms of the rules but moving on to the um the last area to talk about today um how has precarious work showed up as a big factor in pandemic outbreaks in Adelaide recently
2: yeah well i mean many of you um i'm wondering that we recently had a very short very severe lockdown here um while we while we discovered um I was at a there was a pizza bar worker who um had not told uh on um, the contact crisis that um that he worked at that pizza bar. Um, you know, he had already told them that he was just a customer. Now i um, like how this relates them to precarious work is that, you know, we know there are uh, and there are huge numbers of people who um work um cash money jobs. Um um um, because they're so desperate, unlike um, for extra money, that they don't have a choice, and so they they take on these jobs where they, um, like have a really low rate. They've got no um, security. They've got no rights. Basically, um, these are often people on Centrelink payments who, um, you know, just just aren't getting enough from the government, or they, or they want a cash money job because they know that if they start working, their payment actually goes down, and it's actually very hard for them to. Get um to get ahead like in this case mm. um and he was a migrant um like a migrant student and because of his visa um you know he was only able to work very very limited hours but the problem is uh there was just, you know you know there would have been a, a no way for him um to survive by just working those hours and so um you know he and I know that like many others are like in a situation where they have to do like extra work um like under the books, and and of course in these um situations, I think uh, you know our job is not to judge people who are you know in these desperate circumstances where they have to you know take on multiple jobs that they can't um, declare, but to actually look at the the policies and the structures that are that are forcing people I- I into these really really difficult situations, and and a bit like Melbourne, of course, our our um quarantine the um the, uh, um, the people who manage our quarantine workers. Um, our quarantine hotel. So they often have to do multiple jobs because they just don't, I'm don't, um, like earn enough money from being a security guard at a Medi hotel and um, they have to work at another hotel and like another cafe. And we know that this, is, this has contributed onto um, COVID outbreaks, certainly did in Melbourne. And it's been a factor in, in Sydney and like in Adelaide as well.
1: Yeah, it's really showed up and it's been a massive feature of this um, pandemic. And it's... And those things will still probably happen again in Australia. Um, anyway, thanks so much for joining me in Queering the Air, Paz.
2: My pleasure, Iris.
1: And we could talk about this for a long time, I reckon, but maybe another time.
2: Absolutely.
0: Absolutely.
1: And that was Paz for, your, for Journey on welfare rights. And up next, we have... An interview with the lead candidate for Pride in Protest. Stay tuned to Queering the Air.
0: Slavery is back.
1: Welcome to a place where
0: private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor, and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation, and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose, the prisoners would have one view, the people who work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, where where the truth is.
3: Give government propaganda
0: and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Do Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution.
1: So you're tuned into Queering the Air on 3CR community radio and on the line now I have member of Pride and Protest and lead candidate for the Mardi Gras board AGM, which was on yesterday, Alex Boucher. How are you?
0: Yeah, doing really well. How about yourself, Iris?
1: Um, all right, that's been a tiring week, um, but I'm yeah, sure it has been for you as well. Um, but first, could you talk a bit about bit more about yourself and how you got involved in Pride and Protest?
0: Uh, so, yeah, you know, I've been involved in political activism for quite a few years, and uh, Pride and Protest was sort of a, a natural extension. I joined Pride and Protest mid-last year and got quite involved, and I've yeah, been, been involved ever since.
1: Yeah, awesome. Um, and you're the lead candidate. So, are the board results still being counted? Because AGM was yesterday. Uh,
0: <laughs> so the uh, Mardi Gras decided to use a company called Bureau Voting for uh, their their election, basically, and they seem to have had some trouble following the uh, Mardi Gras uh, election guidelines. So we're we're still waiting. Uh, we're told Monday will be when we get those results. Uh, we're hoping to actually get our scrutineers to be able to look over the raw data.
1: Awesome, because it would have was it all online or a mix of online and in person?
0: From what we understand, it was all online.
1: I see. Yeah, so looks like it'll be slow to verify the results and everything to be things to be counted, despite it being online. Um, could you talk a bit about the results? Because it's my understanding that there's been a big upsurge in motions to, do with, motion in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and in solidarity with um, survivors of police violence. That sort of that sort of thing. I think it used. I think it's hard to compare it for years, but it's gone up about twenty percent. Your support for some of these motions. Could you tell us more yeah. about that?
0: Over over the last what we've we've been doing this three years now uh, we have just been increasing our share of the vote and it just goes to show that community education is the the most important part of this sort of activism well, well we are we are blown away by how good the result was yesterday despite losing uh, we had 44 percent of the room on our side uh, you know to, to kick the cops out of the parade and we' are you know, it is disappointing that we haven't managed to get these motions up, but it seems at this point that inevitably the cops won't be at Mardi Gras. Eventually, we we just need to keep keep going. We need to to keep fighting.
1: Mm. How much do you think that has to do with um, the Black Lives Matter movement, like led here by First Nations people, and obviously well-publicised, originating out of the so-called United States. Do you think that had a big part, as well as the grassroots campaigning you've been doing, which also intersects with yeah. Black Lives Matter?
0: Yeah, a- absolutely. And uh, the the Black Lives Matter movement has been completely instrumental in shifting the way a lot of Australians think about police powers, uh, and you know, shifting the way a lot of people around the world see police powers. So we have we have been you know massively aided by that movement, which sound cynical and political, but we that that movement has definitely helped uh, for us to be able to explain our message. And yeah, we're we're you know always at those rallies where we, as uh, uh, the person that proposed the motion, uh, is an indigenous man named Keith Quayle, and yeah, he's he's absolutely brilliant and has been instrumental in bringing us uh, into that fold and uh, yeah, bringing bringing the collective along to in that movement.
1: Yeah, for sure. People should, listeners should, can te- check out the article on Overland recently on this, um, featuring Keith, uh, was, was written by Keith, I can't remember now. Um... Yeah, it was, it was authored by Keith. Yeah, authored by Keith. Um, yeah, great article. Um, so you are talking a bit about this before, but what's the general mood of Pride and Protest now after yesterday's AGM?
0: We're, we're, we're incredibly optimistic. We we held such a large part of the room. We have just increased our, our share of the vote each year. And I think the thing that doesn't, you know, get they get spoken about enough is there were a raft of special resolutions at the beginning of the AGM. And they were all blocked, which to me shows a real sign of no confidence in the current board.
1: Hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot of dissatisfaction with Mardi Gras. That, yeah, and another thing is like Mardi Gras is, is not really a representative institution. And obviously, there's class divisions in LGBTIQ circles as well. But could you talk a bit about Mardi Gras? Because I think it's, you have to pay a certain amount of money to be and voting, have voting rights, and that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, so the, the cost to become a member of Mardi Gras is $50 uh, per year. For a concession, it's 40 we had a motion that failed yesterday to bring uh, the, the cost of membership down, uh, but we, we are just going to continue pushing for a more inclusive Mardi Gras. One of the things that Mardi Gras likes to bring up a lot is that there are all these commercial benefits associated with membership, but realistically, a member of organisation should not rely on commercial benefits to get people involved. People should be able to be involved without needing to get those commercial
1: benefits. Yeah, for sure. Um Yeah, in terms of the pride in protest protests here, um, it's my understanding there has been a lot of like winning back the right to protest. Do you think you've won back that right successfully now?
0: I think, yeah, quite a few well well, I mean it's, it's never going to be you know, during the pandemic, back to the, the full level, but we're going to keep fighting for that. In New South Wales, the, the number recently increased again. And, yeah, we're, we're hopeful that, you know, by the time that we're holding our... Uh, we're, we will be holding a, a parade on Mardi Gras on Oxford Street because you may or may not be aware that there is a, uh, a parade that is happening through the uh, Sydney Cricket Ground we will be holding one on Oxford Street, and we're hoping that by that time there is no longer, you know, any of these ridiculous limits.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, Because I know outside is low risk, and and at the moment things are relatively under control in Australia. Um, But in terms of the future, I'm looking towards that, that's quite like an opening, isn't it? That we have the Mardi Gras being held in a S- Sydney cricket ground and now we have yourselves organising like your own alternative sort of Mardi Gras. How do you feel about that opening?
0: Look, we're, we're glad the opening exists. And I, ugh, while, while the, the results of the AGM are unfortunate, we would prefer to be able to bring Mardi Gras along with us on you know the, the path to being a truly representative organisation which is why we're going to uh, keep fighting within Mardi Gras as well for, for those changes. But, yeah, our, our, you know, real Mardi Gras that we'll be holding on the day on Oxford Street, it's going to be corporation-free. It's going to be cop-free. These are these are things that Mardi Gras should embrace and things that we believe Mardi Gras will embrace.
1: Mm. Is there anything you could say to um, queers in Melbourne and other places, so-called Melbourne, um in terms of organizing against the, these like pink dollar cop friendly politics that you've learnt over the years
0: i think that the biggest part of it is you you really need a like strong community education campaign and one of one of the things that you mentioned earlier was the, the black lives matter protest. you need to be involved in those uh you know a, adjacent movements as well so that you can so that you can bring people along with you and so that you can sort of expand uh, the, the base of uh, the group uh, Our collective is you know not not huge but it's uh, a fair size and um, we've we've sort of gotten to the point now where all of our all of our stuff that we post on social media is shared around by people who aren't even involved in the group but doing all of that sort of takes time and you have to work up towards it you know, you, you don't wake up one morning and suddenly have all of these tools available.
1: Mm, yeah, it sounds like, like relationships and solidarity at the intersections is like, yeah, has been crucial to building um, the support that Pride and Protest has now.
0: Yeah, uh, we, we organised a trans-day resistance rally, which happened uh, on a Saturday a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, it is... It is those sorts of things that bring new people into the collective. It's those sorts of things that also help educate people on those issues. Without it being viewed through a lens, such as, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald or The Guardian, having it viewed purely through this is what our message is, without any spin, you can do that through organising rallies. You can do that through, uh, you know, social media campaigns.
1: Yeah, it's been really great stuff. And we know um, that there's you have international connections as well, don't you, in terms of um, Oteroa, Auckland got rid of the cops and had their own parade in the last few years as well.
0: Yeah, and from what I understand, the, the 2020 parade was the, the biggest one that they've ever had. You know, they, they had all of these non-commercial events because... One of the the side effects of kicking out the cops seems to have been that uh, corporations no longer want anything to do with Auckland Pride either. But you know they're they're still going strong. They're they're still running an event, and I would say arguably an event that is uh, better for the community, better for representation, and better for everyone.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so, in terms of people interested in Pride and Process, they can just follow you on your social medias.
0: Yeah, so we're on uh, Facebook at Pride in Protest, uh, Twitter, Pride in Protest, and Instagram, pride.in.protest.
1: Awesome. Um, Thanks for joining me on Queering the Air today, Alex.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Iris.
1: And that was Alex from Pride in Protest talking about the AGM and organising amazing stuff they're doing there. And we're reaching the end of our show today on the Air 3CR Community Radio. Um, had a bunch of things to shout out to and that sort of stuff. But as always, the time goes fast when you're on live radio and you don't have time to edit things and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. So I don't know. if I sh- What should I mention? So coming up is um, there is the... Queer Lunar New Year by Red Pocket Press. They're calling for um, contributions from queer LGBTIQ Asians who celebrate or have a relationship with the Lunar New Year. So check out Red Pocket Press, that's, not, that's their third Queer Lunar New Year zine, The Year of the Golden Ox. Um, also yeah, over this period definitely check out mutual aid fundraisers like the First Nations one I mentioned earlier. I'm also involved in um, IRL InfoShop, i also provide that are doing Xmas, like mutual aid, like end of year hampers. So definitely check out, support one another, support communities, and hopefully next year we'll bring down some of these, some more of these oppressive institutions. I'm Iris, you've been listening to Creating the Air on Radical 3CR Community Radio, and I'm going to go out with 2000 and whatever by Electric Fields.
3: You're a blonde with the eyes of a panther what? With your cosmic skin and a solar to you dancer Oh, you should know this by now your energy is loud what? I'll be knocking you directly when I see you in the crowd Make you look up from the paranoid please Spinning in and out of space, on a mount in Istanbul, millennia. Go